You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 21st of May, 2019, on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Daniel Beige. On today's program, Indonesia's President Joko Widodo is back for a second term. But will his opponent, claiming widespread cheating, go lightly? And what does the result mean for the economy, security and future of the world's third largest democracy? My guests, Samira Shackle and Brian Klass, will be discussing reaction to the result and the day's other top stories, including what do reports of money laundering against the Trump organization mean for the president and the overall conversation about corruption in major Western democracies? And we look at why the UN General Assembly is likely to hand the Chagos Islands back to Mauritius and why so many nations have sided against the UK's claim. All that plus, how does a new airport affect the already overcrowded Machu Picchu? That's all to come here on Midori House with me, Daniel Bage. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are journalist Samira Shackle, who specializes in social affairs, politics, race, and South Asia, and Brian Klass, who's an assistant professor in global politics at University College London and a columnist for The Washington Post. Welcome both to the program and back to Midori House. We start today's show in Indonesia, where Joko Widodo has just won another term as president of the world's third biggest democracy. He won by a 55 uh, 55.5% margin over his opponent, the former general Prabowo Subinato, who had alleged widespread cheating ahead of the final tally. Uh, was this expected, Samira? Uh, yeah, I think it was. It was tighter um, than the last race when these two also came up against each other. But I think it was broadly expected that Widodo would win. Um, but I guess we've seen uh, around the world lots of kind of upsets of um, votes, particularly where there's a kind of nationalist strongman type, which is definitely mm. what Prabowo uh was he's the son-in-law of the former dictator Suharto? He's very, uh, very much nationalist. He was really kind of playing to the conservative, Islamist faction of the electorate. Um, and yeah, I think it's it's probably broadly good that uh, Widodo, the incumbent, who's who's mm. more of a moderate, has come back in. Well, it seems the the economy was was growing steadily under uh, his, you know his first term in office, but uh, some will be disappointed in the same breath because there are uh, there are concerns about human rights. And, and things like that. Is that right, Brian? Yeah, there are. But I mean, I think that, as we said, it's, you know, it's one of these things where uh, it can be bad, but it can also be much worse. And the alternative was much worse. Mm. Um, you know, this is the New York Times is hailing this as a, you know, sort of a breath of fresh air after the, the longstanding tilt towards strongmen across the world. And I think that, uh, you know, it's refreshing to hear somebody in a country that is emerging, an emerging economy, talk about the virtues of pluralism and get reelected mm. um, and, and talk about the values of democracy. I also think, you know, it's interesting, the 55-45 um, margin and the, the calls of, of fraud by the, um, by the losing candidate. Um, you know, it's one of these things that you often have in, in close elections in, in fragile democracies. Uh, and there doesn't seem to be much evidence for it so far. But that 10-point margin is important because uh, I've served as, as an election observer in the past. And one of the things you, you notice is that the international community is much more willing to give the thumbs up to an election 
when there's a significant a significant enough margin that cheating probably wouldn't have changed the result anyway. Right. And so I think in this situation, uh, there will be some people who are you know crying sour grapes, but ultimately Widodo will will be the the next president, and the controversy will eventually end. Uh, well, what of uh, the timing of the results? Because uh, these were released a little bit earlier, and with with some surprise, uh, perhaps because of fears there would be unrest and, and street demonstrations as well. So so was that a good call, Samir? That, that they've come out and 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 had a, a clear margin of victory for uh, Wododo. I think so. I mean, it's hard to say. I guess there hasn't there hasn't been the kind of um, thus far as a, a, certainly the last time I looked, there hadn't been the kind of unrest that they were concerned about. So that seems to be positive. I think also. Um, this kind of question of um, uh, kind of questioning the result, I think that was to be expected. So when they stood against each other in 2014, uh, Proboa pursued uh, an unsuccessful claim, legal claim against the result then through the courts. Um, so it's kind of to be expected. And it's also in keeping with, I think, what we see from these kind of strongman figures around the world. There's a, a sense of, of kind of trying to undermine... Um, democratic institutions mm. and so on and uh, to kind of shore up their own power the kind of there was a lot as in many many elections that you're seeing both in the developing uh, and the developed world um, lots of fake news lots of social media rumors and mudslinging and and kind of nefarious whatsapp forwards and facebook groups and so on um, and all of those things have been at play here as well and so i think they're you know they're obviously kind of doing what they can to prevent uh, negative uh, fallout from that. Mm. Is this a, a slightly positive n- note then, uh, Brian, inside the country that uh, that perhaps uh, these tactics, as Samira has set out from Proboa, uh, aren't really being accepted? Yeah, I mean, look, I think that one of the things that we have to just acknowledge, and I think it's it's not acknowledged enough, is that there is no perfect election, yeah. right? Every, every election has flaws, whether that's in Britain, the, U- the U.S., in Australia or in you know countries that tend to get press for for bad elections, and I, and I think that obviously there's a major gradation between them, but there was there's going to be flaws that emerge out of this election. It's a, it's 190 million registered voters. The question is. Were they sufficient? Were those flaws, A, deliberate, and B, sufficient to actually change the result? And so far, there doesn't seem to be any indication of that. And so you would hope that that would, that would be sufficient to clamp down on these rumors. Of course, obviously, this candidate is operating in bad faith. Mm. Um, and, and as Samira rightly pointed out, this is something where when you go down and you're a strongman figure and you lose, it's not just about discounting the result in order to potentially try to you know steal victory from the jaws of defeat. It's also about trying to delegitimize the winner, right, and create problems for them once they become the president. Mm. And so I think that's what this is about now is trying to ensure that a polarized country continues to have, you know, this splintering factions within it. And that will be a headache for Wododo uh, regardless. And, and, and I don't think it would have, uh, I don't think it will upset the result or anything like that, but it will continue that polarization. What about uh, Wododo's agenda moving forward? Will he be a little bit emboldened here by the fact that um, some leaders from Western countries and around the world will, will be accepting of this result? Will he, will he see that as a, as a, you know, a positive affirmation of where he's going? 
I would have thought so. And of course, he's um, he's an incumbent, you know, so he um, has that kind of legitimacy around him already, I think. Uh, and I might see it as a kind of endorsement of his programme. Um, I think one thing that came out in the election campaign was more of an emphasis on religion. So Indonesia, of course, is 80% Muslim, but it's not the, doesn't have a formal state religion. Uh, and there seemed to be... Um, but both candidates were really kind of emphasising their religious credentials. Mm. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see what happens now. So Wododo is generally seen as a moderate, but he did choose as his running mate a powerful cleric. So it'll be interesting to see um, whether he kind of continues as it was or or feels some pressure to, um, you know, kind of implement more religiously motivated policies. Hmm. And will will that affect uh, the greater region, Brian? Who is watching closely here? Well, I mean, there's a lot of great power politics, obviously. I mean, it's, you know, it's it's the third largest democracy in the world. It's a country that has a lot at stake. Um, you know, when you look at Southeast Asia in general, though, the, this, the signals are not particularly good in the rest of the region. I mean, we, we just had a couple months ago Thailand's elections in which the, the military junta effectively uh, destroyed democracy and, and rigged the, the, the system in order to return to power. Um, they're having problems forming a government. But I think, you know, th- this is the thing that we need to be watching is that this is now 12 years of straight democratic decline across the world. Indonesia might be a lone bright spot, but I think getting complacent would be a very big mm. mistake because the headwinds are very strong in that region. Uh, very well said. Let us uh, turn the page now to uh, talk about the United States uh, and claims of money laundering by President Donald Trump. This all follows a report by the New York Times saying that employees of Deutsche Bank flagged concerns over over some transactions by entities controlled by the president and his son-in-law, Jared Kushner. Brian, uh, you wrote about this in the Washington Post, and there is quite the web to understand uh, that involves a Trump hotel in Baku and a mention of Iran's Revolutionary Guards even. Uh, So money laundering, uh, you know, in that case is pinned on a partner in Azerbaijan. But explain these latest uh, revelations that include Deutsche Bank. Okay, so the latest one is a report that there were anti-money laundering specialist at Deutsche Bank who flagged suspicious activity that is indicative of money laundering at Trump's accounts and also Kushner family accounts, Jared Kushner being Trump's son-in-law. Now, this is no indication that there is definitely money money laundering going on. Mm. SARs or suspicious activity reports are filed routinely, but the Deutsche Bank executives did not take any action. So there's questions about whether that was because it was politically sensitive or not. This gets to a bigger story, though, which is that there are multiple allegations of Trump involved with money laundering. One that you mentioned is Trump Tower Baku, which is a failed venture to basically turn an apartment block into a Trump hotel. Uh, Trump was in business with the Mamadov family in Azerbaijan, which has ties to Iran's Revolutionary Guard and is known to engage in money laundering. Mm. Um, Every red flag in the book went up in that in that project, um, you know, and so this was supposed to be a flagship, and and now in 2016 they uh, they pulled out of it, and then on top of it, there's the risk of money laundering charges against Trump Organization for the so-called hush money payments that Trump paid um, to try to silence Stormy Daniels mm-hmm. right before the election. So. It's yet another front in the criminal allegations against the U.S. president. Uh, So to talk about Trump and possible corruption, uh, this doesn't seem like much of a stretch than money laundering. Uh, His associates have been jailed, hush money payments, as you mentioned, uh, accusations of tax evasion, uh, massive reports in The New York Times about that. But in terms of looking at the West, uh, we don't often discuss corruption in this way, do we, Samira? 
No, we don't. And I think one of the things about the whole Trump presidency is that um, it kind of highlights some of the the weaknesses and vulnerabilities in the system. Um, and I think there, around the time that Trump was elected, there were a lot of concerns about, um, you know, he's, all the kind of democratic norms that he was violating immediately. The kind of one that springs to mind is uh, rules on nepotism. You know, he immediately mm. appointed pretty much his whole family to, uh, to political posts, which breaks all sorts of norms and rules. Um, and the argument that was often made was, you know, don't worry, the institutions are strong enough. Um, we've got a very strong tradition of democracy and we will be able to, uh, you know, those those traditions are stronger than any one candidate, any one president, any one individual. And I think what the Trump presidency has really highlighted is that that's not necessarily true. And I think we can easily slip into a kind of arrogance in the West. And it goes for the UK or France or Germany or whatever it is as well as the US, I think, that... Um, this idea that you know we're we're so good at doing democracy, we've been doing it for so long, and it's so well established, etc., that that these kinds of things can't happen. And I think the Trump presidency has really made a mockery of that and shown that actually, if someone is not concerned with democratic norms or with uh, you know even particularly preserving the appearance of of not being corrupt, let alone not actually being corrupt, you know, it, it can really if you don't care about. Uh, about precedent and norms, you can really ride roughshod over it. And I think we're just seeing that play out in uh, real slow motion. Is there um, a lot to say then about the way we look at corruption in the West, Brian? Would you take that up? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, this is one of the points I make in this piece I wrote today, which is it's to say that, you know, when you look at things like the Transparency International Corruption Perceptions Index, Mm. The countries where the money is stolen from are all in the triple digits. They're all at the bottom. But the countries where the money is actually laundered through and where it ends up, they're all at the top. And the most egregious example of this is the first-ranked country is Denmark. And Danske Bank had an involvement in the largest corruption scandal and money laundering scandal in history recently, right? I mean, it's a, de- it's a, a, a bank that's headquartered in Denmark. The Deutsche Bank uh, allegations for Trump come after... Deutsche Bank executives are facing potential prosecution for involvement in a $20 billion Russian money laundering scheme. And Germany, where Deutsche Bank is headquartered, is 11th on the list. So, you know, I I think at some point we have this idea that corruption is something that happens elsewhere, when in fact the mechanism of corruption, the system of it, the scaffolding all exists uh, in headquarters in the West with people in nicely pressed suits. And, and sort of the the cookie-cutter villains, so to speak, of corruption are the ones that we think about. But in fact, they couldn't get away with it without help of London's and Miami's and New York's of the world. Uh, part of this, uh, the Trump uh, organization has not even denied, and that, that may go back to the Baku part of it. But uh, is there a new front for the Democrats to really uh, attack or, or anyone else for that matter to go after President Trump? Well, you'd hope so, but there's been so many of these kinds of um, of these kinds of examples and and cases that they all just seem to kind of bounce off. I mean, I think they certainly can be a line of attack. I think the question is whether, uh, in such a kind of climate of polarization, um, whether that has any kind of impact on Trump voters and his um, his kind of base. And I don't think it really will. Does this say a lot about the mechanism of banking, Brian, do you think, in general, that these, you know, these red flags are are seen but not really investigated? Yeah, I mean, I think that there is hopefully going to be a culture change when prosecutions get involved because that is that is different. Um, And I'd just like to follow up on that point about the political ramifications of this, because, you know, I think 
I think there's a question that needs to be asked of Nancy Pelosi, the, the leader, the Speaker of the House for the Democrats, which is how many crimes do you have to commit before impeachment is warranted, mm. right? I mean, like, is there a number? Because we now have serious convincing evidence of a multiple different types of crimes. I mean, the Department of Justice says that he directed a criminal conspiracy. The New York Times exposed tax fraud. Now we have serious allegations of money laundering. And the Mueller report has 10 counts of obstruction of justice, which mm. would land anyone else in jail. So, you know... I, I understand that there there is hesitation about the political calculations here because Trump would not get removed from a Senate trial. But over the weekend, a Republican member of the House said that Trump should be impeached. So now there is a bipartisan uh, move. And, and that will put pressure on the Democrats. There's a, a report in the New York Times today that says that Democratic leadership is pushing Pelosi on this. And it may be untenable for her to remain on this sort of half in, half out where she says things like, well, he he does things that warrant impeachment, but we're not going to go there because if he does things that warrant impeachment, the only person that should, should be choosing to impeach is her. Mm. And, and I don't think she's going to be able to get away with that answer for much longer. What is the Democrats' great fear, though, that uh, they'll just be labeled as people that want Trump impeached and, and they have no other political aim? Yeah, it's overreach, right? Yeah. The, the, and I think they're wrong about this, by the yeah. way. I mean, R- Richard Nixon, when he was going to be impeached, before he resigned, there was not overwhelming support to remove him from office. It was because they held the hearings where they aired all of the evidence publicly. I mean, a very small number of people have read the Mueller report, and those who do are like, wow, this is really bad. But the reason why he's getting away with some of the claims is because people aren't reading it. And Mm -hmm. if you have these high-profile hearings, it's impossible to ignore. So I suspect that reading a poll now versus reading a poll after hearings would yield quite a different result. What about that pressure that uh, Brian talked about on Nancy Pelosi? Is, is there sort of a time frame on this, uh, Samira, and, and when where the Democrats will go with this? It's really hard to say, isn't it? And, of course, they're gearing up for the next election. It's a kind of relentless cycle of American politics. Mm. So, uh, and, and, you know, as, as Brian says, it's almost amazing that it hasn't happened yet when there's just kind of evidence upon evidence of um, different crimes, things that would land anyone else in jail, the kind of repeated obstruction. He's... Um, filed um, motions in court to block subpoenas of his financial records, um, all sorts of things. And, you know, the the kind of very, very close associates being jailed. um, It's all um, seems like a very compelling case to at least pursue it. And the fact that it hasn't been done now means it's Mm. very difficult to see what what would change in that calculus to make it happen. Brian, I'm curious how how damaging this could be for for Deutsche Bank as well. Uh, Donald Trump has, you know, put out lawsuits uh, so they, they wouldn't release records, but they're the bank that's stood by him for a long time. Well, I mean, look, no international financial institution wants to be in the crosshairs of an extremely bitter partisan fight. And that's what's about to happen, right? I mean, there's going to be more and more push by congressional investigators to now subpoena Deutsche Bank records. Um, And they have quite a lot of cause to do so. And they don't have things like executive privilege, which Donald Trump is trying to invoke. They will have to abide by those subpoenas if they want to operate in the United States. So, uh, yeah, I think it will have some fallout and it will also change how people think about the risk calculation when they bank with potentially very rich people who want to go into politics. You are listening to Midori House here with me, Daniel Bage, Samira Shackle and Brian Klass. Stay with us. Our very own Monocle Library is growing into a robust collection of well-turned-out titles. For an in-depth look into our core theme of quality of life, why not delve into our first-ever book, The Monocle Guide to Better Living? For any would-be business leaders, entrepreneurs, or even established companies in search of fresh ideas, there's The Monocle Guide to Good Business. In How to Make a Nation, A Monocle Guide, we look at the small and the big things that can help make our nations work better. 
And in the Monocle Guide to Drinking and Dining, we bypass the foam and the fuss to uncover the makings of a truly great meal. Monocle's handsome books are published by our friends at Gestalten in Berlin and offer a world of new experiences between the covers. So spruce up your shelves today and buy some of our titles online at monocle.com or from any good bookstore. Welcome back to Midori House. Still with me, Samira Shackle and Brian Klass. The Chagos Islands are one of the last vestiges of Britain's imperial past in the Indian Ocean, also known as the British Indian Ocean Territory. The archipelago is claimed by Mauritius. And tomorrow, Britain faces having to relinquish its claim to those islands after a vote in the General Assembly at the United Nations. While London and Washington trying to persuade some nations to abstain from this vote, the UK faces a thrashing with Mauritius believing it has more than 100 votes among the UN's 193 member states. Um, I'm curious what the this island, these uh, this chain of islands means for Mauritius. How integral do you think those islands are uh, to a country like that at this time? I think the fact that um, Mauritius gained its independence in uh, 1968, but it wasn't really a complete independence because mm. um, I think it's three of its islands were uh, just kind of sectioned off by the British three years before. And I think that um, in that kind of context, it's very important. It's about mm. territorial integrity. There's also um, a whole host of people, the Chagossians, who were just a you know, kind of unceremoniously evicted from their island to make way for a US military base in yeah. Diego Garcia. So I think there's there's several issues there. There's the kind of territorial integrity of Mauritius and the fact that this is essentially just a, a, a kind of last remnant of colony that Britain doesn't really have any claim to other yeah. than, you know, we colonised it once and we don't want to give it back. That only <laughs> seems to sum up the argument. Uh, and the fact that you have uh, some displaced people who've spent the last four decades campaigning to be allowed to return to their homeland. Mm. Um, so I think that's um, that's the kind of importance of it. It's you know it's almost incredible to talk about this because the, the Britain's claim goes back to the beginning of the 19th century, I, be, I believe, and and now they're going to be resoundingly defeated in the United Nations by people saying give it back, um, which is quite incredible in this time. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, to be speaking about colonialism in, in 2019 is is also incredible. But I think that this is these territorial disputes are actually much more prominent than I think we understand. And it's mm-hmm. not just Mauritius. Like, I, I spent a lot of time in Madagascar, which is in the same neck of the woods as Mauritius. And they have a territorial dispute over basically a hunk of rock with France. And there's nothing on the rock. But the French military, the, the Navy, sends somebody down each year. Um, And the reason for this is because of water rights around territories mean that the oil underneath that might be there Mm. depends on who has a claim to it. So, you know, in this case, in the Chagos Islands, it's about a military base. In other places, it's about potential mineral resources. And, you know, the, the various mechanisms for resolving these tensions sometimes don't work and they just end up simmering for decades the idea of throwing to the UN Security Council, or sorry, not the UN Security Council, the UN General Assembly, is going to be going to make the United States very nervous mm. because the idea of being able to use that body uh, as a way to resolve these disputes, the U.S. position will will be that this is a way to simply stick it to the superpower yeah. in the UN, and so they're going to be very worried about the precedent this might set. Uh, what do you think about that precedent? Does that make sense to you, Samira? Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
I think it's quite nerve-wracking for both the US and the UK. I mean, the US has lobbied really, really hard um, on behalf of the UK. So I think if uh, if the UK is defeated, as is expected, that uh, maybe says something about declining US influence, about the way that those votes might go in the future, if it does, as Brian says, set a precedent. Uh, I think it's also interesting in terms of the UK position. Um, I think there's a lot of former colonies uh, who have voting rights in the UN General Assembly, of course, yeah. I think... Um, by many African and Asian states, it's seen as a kind of stand against colonialism and they're not really expected to to side with the UK at all. They're expected to vote with Mauritius. Uh, And there's also the fact, um, not to kind of overstate the case about UK diplomatic isolation, but there's the fact that uh, I think in years gone by, the UK could depend on automatic votes from uh, European Union member states, uh, which now it can't. Lots of them are expected to either abstain or vote with Mauritius. So I think it kind of says something about um, declining declining uh, declining power I mean maybe declining international power is overstating it but declining power within these multilateral international mm. bodies for both the US and the UK which perhaps is not surprising because they're both pursuing isolationist yeah. agendas well I'm glad you brought those points up about uh, about mm. Africa and and the European Union perhaps uh, mm. those nations dismayed by uh, what's happening with brexit but uh, are you surprised Brian to see uh, Britain isolated on its own piece of rock out in the middle of the ocean here on this well no I mean I think I think this is like if you're from the European Union and you're trying to stick it to the UK yeah but you also don't want to damage your own interests, this is the perfect case to do it with, right? Because it's it's not of central importance to any of the European members, European Union members. Uh, it is of importance to the UK, and it won't have fallout for, say, Poland, yeah. right? Whereas other more important votes in the UN on security issues or trade the, the underlying interests have not changed. So this is an, an, a potential shot across the bow. It is, of course, possible to read too much into everything being Trump or Brexit. Um, But I think that we we will see more and more of this as uh, as Brexit unfolds. If it actually happens, you will you will see smaller votes that do not have European Union core interests at stake where the UK is out on its own, possibly only backed by the US. I want to make sure we have time for this uh, last topic today. Uh, let's turn our attention to Peru. So popular is the Inca Citadel of Machu Picchu that more than twice the number of tourists recommended by UNESCO visited the site in 2017. 1.5 million visitors put a huge strain on the fragile remains and its surroundings. But now work has begun clearing ground for a multi-billion dollar airport, which would bring in even more people and bring them even closer to Machu Picchu than the airport that exists now. Uh, And to no surprise, this is not being well received. Uh, This is, uh, Samira, a golden goose of the region, I believe. But uh, what do you make of this idea of this new airport? Yeah, I mean, it's it's easy to see, um, you know, you can see the kind of dollar signs in the eyes of people um, Mm. designing it, I think. But it's it's the kind of question that underpins lots of these um, discussions about tourism, which is, uh, you know, where is the point at which the tourism, which, you know, obviously has loads of benefits to local economies and so on and providing money to maintain lots of these World Heritage sites, etc. There's lots of good things about tourism, but where is the point at which that tourism becomes very detrimental to uh, the, the people who live in the area surrounding the tourist attraction and also to the tourist attraction itself? Um, I thought it was notable that uh, under pressure from UNESCO, um, Peru introduced kind of shifts for tourists uh, mm. to, I think, morning and afternoon. But, uh, you know, with the kind of prospect of doubling the number of people coming, it's difficult to see how that could be uh, maintained. Um, and there's also the fact that they're, in the words of one expert um, whose quote I read in the news, that um, 
that they're basically building an airport on top of what people have come to see. You know, they're building it over an Inca uh, town. So, <laughs> you know, that, that also, I think, raises questions. That's a very, very stark example of tourism becoming detrimental to right. the attraction itself. A strange balance where they're, they're mm. getting rid of actual um, uh, heritage, I guess. Uh, mm. This idea of the airport, Brian, has been debated since the 1970s, if I'm, if I'm not wrong. Does that mean it's carefully considered or... Well, I think it's probably that the yeah. economics have now yeah. tilted to the yeah. point where it's it's extremely lucrative, quite clearly. I think this debate is, is raging all over the world on, yeah. on various sites. I mean, Thailand just uh, closed the beach where the beach was filmed yeah. um, uh, for two years because the, the ecosystem was getting damaged so much. There's talk about how Croatia, where they filmed Game of Thrones, some of those towns have become un, uninhabitable for the residents who are, on the one hand, you know, having an economic boom, but are also unable to enjoy their own home. And I think, you know, you get this tension between the sort of uh, the, the privileged view, which is let's maintain this pristine area, and the sort of economic view, which is, you know, this came up when Cuba was opening to the U.S. and people said, oh, the cruise ships are going to ruin it. But then many Cubans were in favor of that idea because it was the first time to be able to to make some serious cash. So. Yeah, it, it's. I, I think the sort of my personal view is that a place like Machu Picchu being unspoiled is a global heritage yeah. uh, aspect of it. But but I also would have a hard time explaining that to somebody who is living in poverty who could all of a sudden be lifted out of it by uh, a lot of Westerners who want to go there uh, and splash some cash. Samir, does this uh, push back from from some places over their heritage? Is is that positive in a sense if we move away from Machu Picchu and talk about some of those mm. other examples that, that Brian brought up? Yeah, it's it's a really, really tricky debate, I think. And as Brian says, you see it all over the place. Uh, I mean, there's been kind of anti-tourist, a lot of anti-tourist hostility in Barcelona, for instance. Um, Venice as well, they've been talking about introducing things like a tourist tax and limiting numbers of people from cruise ships and so on and uh, all sorts of rules. Um, so I think it's a it's a difficult balance. I mean, I think it is important to preserve um, to preserve things. I think it's also important for people's lives to be livable. Um, and that needs to be balanced with the kind of economic benefits, I guess. Um, and, and I think it, it's a kind of increasingly pressing question, just because um, the world we live in has made travel so much easier, you know, it's mm. so much cheaper to travel by air. Um, but yeah, I think there needs to be kind of... Um, sort of responsible policies that isn't just solely motivated by money. Otherwise, it kind of ends up being very detrimental to tourism and those economic benefits in the end. Fair enough. Uh, we shall leave it there for today's show. Uh, Samir Shackle and Brian Class, thank you for joining us here at Midori House. Today's show produced by Carlotta Ribello, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Neelam Nijar. Our studio manager, Miss Christy Evans. More music next. And then at 1900 Hours, it's Monocle On Design, the Monocle Daily here with all the day's top news stories at 22 London time. I'm Daniel Bage. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye.